The following podcast was produced from a show which was originally aired in 2006. Hi, I'm Marion McPartland. My guest today on Piano Jazz is guitarist arranger Pat Matheny. He's a musician without peer. His style of playing, harmonic concept, and original ideas are totally his own. Throughout his career, Pat continues to evolve as he works with new technology and improvisation skills. He's certainly one of the brightest stars in the jazz firmament. And I say so, and so does everybody else. How are you, Pat? I'm great, and I'm so glad to be here with you today, Marian. Oh, I'm just so glad to have you. And when I think of when I first met you, you were only about 15, 16. I think I was actually 14 when I met you for the first time. In Decatur, Illinois. That's right. We were doing the sort of guest faculty and... And I can't were, believe it. You were a student. Well, you you were incredibly inspiring, actually, and um, you know it was a, a very big week for me. It was one of the first times I'd ever left home. You know, really? For, in fact, really? I think it was the first time I was ever away from my parents. You know, and, really, uh, I didn't I, know that. I had won like a little scholarship from Downbeat Magazine, which was a shock. I mean, it was something that I hadn't anticipated at all. I had entered this contest by sort of playing all, basically an exact copy of a Wes Montgomery solo. And uh, the, the prize was to uh, go to this um, camp. And you were there, and uh, I Phil had Wilson. several master classes with you and met uh, a few musicians that I've stayed in touch with to this day. But, I mean, it was the first time I'd ever really been around other kids my age that had an interest and an awareness of jazz on a high level, and uh, it was a very important week for me. And uh, I, I think I even wrote a tune that that you uh, did. You wrote a, it was a, a a big band piece actually, and it was called Charge. And there's a funny reason why it was called Charge. Yeah, why was it? <clears throat> because my dad had a business uh, in the little town I'm from, Lee Summit, and. Um, I noticed that professional arrangers always had like a rubber stamp at the top of the chart that had the name of the chart on it. Right. And the only rubber stamp my dad had was charged. So oh. <laughs> I used that rubber stamp, and therefore the tune was called Charged. So. I think that was put great. I was really use. country then, you know. I mean. Well, it was it was great to have that piece, and I've I've got to unearth that thing and bloody well play it. (laughs) Well, I mean, it wasn't the most advanced composition in the world, but it was a thrill to be able to write something, and I appreciated very much that you enjoyed it and that you uh, supported it and approved of it and everything. Well, that whole week, or whether it was a week or two weeks, I don't know what it was, but it was very enjoyable, and, and the kids were all very good, especially yourself. And uh, now it just seems like a minute, but it's I don't know how many years. And well, that would have here been you are today, yeah. as I say, a big star in the in jazz. And you brought your group with you. Who did you bring? Well, I'm just so happy to have had the opportunity over the last uh, you know ten or fifteen years to have played often with one of the great bass players of our time. And uh, I. I just can't say enough about him, but it's not just me. It's everybody that knows him and that loves him, as we all do, and that's the great Christian McBride on the bass. That imp. 
(laughs) And uh, joining us on the drums is uh, a guy who's also been a member of my regular group, the Pat Metheny group, for the past few years. And to me, he's one of the most exciting drummers to show up in many, many years. He's from Mexico, and his name is Antonio Sanchez. Well, it's just great to have all of you here. And I'm dying to hear you play something. So... What do you think the first number is likely to be? Well, I thought we'd start from the very beginning, which is uh, the first tune on the first album that I ever made many years ago. And it's still fun to play, especially with Christian and Antonio. And it's called Bright Size Life. Wonderful. Can't wait to hear it.
Boy, that's a really wonderful tune. Well, thank you. That was what you started out with when you were, what, about 17 or something? Yeah, 17 or 18. I mean, for me, the, the whole thing of writing music sort of evolved as a platform for... It was out, out of necessity, actually, because there was a way I wanted to play as an improviser that I was having a hard time sort of reconciling with playing on standards and playing on blues forms and the kinds of things that I was doing, you know, around Kansas City with the musicians I was playing with there. You didn't want to do those particularly. Well, I did, actually, and I, and I loved it, and I still do. I still love playing, you know, in, in that way. But there was a certain kind of thing that... Um, I, I, I felt like I needed to come up with an environment for, to support this way of improvising. And that tune is kind of, still remains a good example. I mean, you know, the kind of harmonic things that are going on are more like just simple triads and very uh, almost folk-like kinds of harmonic motions. Yeah. And to me, that, that was a very appealing and, and uh, a very resonant area of interest to express what I was doing as you an very, improviser. You really knew just what you wanted to do right then and then when did Gary Burton get into your life just around well, that I was, time yeah I was a big fan of his group from that period in the late 60s uh, especially they were one of the bands that I felt was really trying to kind of find a, a place within the the jazz language that had that kind of resonance with the times of what was happening there he's so wonderful and I imagine that he, he was very helpful to you at that time. Well, wasn't he? getting to join his band at, at the age of eighteen was sort of like joining the Beatles for me. I mean, that was my <laughs> favorite band, and uh, you know, the fact that I, you know, might get to play with them ever in my entire life was sort of a major goal, and to be able to do it so young was great in itself. But the best part was being around not only Gary but Steve Swallow and Bob Moses and Mick Goodrick, the other guys oh, who were in the band. God, then. when I think of Steve Swallow, he worked with me to it a great deal and what a funny guy he's apart a, from a, being a wonderful player he is one of the great people on earth no yes he about certainly it. is well that must have been a great time for you with all these thoughts going through your head and all the music that you have inside you that you want to get some of it out well i was very kind of determined in a way to follow what i saw as kind of an essential component throughout jazz history, which was musicians who found a way to manifest into sound the things that they found to be true and to be real to them. And, you know, in my case, my story was a little bit different. I came from a country town out in the middle of Missouri, and it was not the same as growing up in Philly like Christian or, you know, doing, you know, all the different other avenues that people have found their way into jazz, like you too. I mean, you know, I came from a different angle. And to me, I always embrace that. I, I never tried to hide from that. And to me, jazz is a form that not only accepts other things, it kind of demands that kind of honesty, that kind of personal connection to what oh, you play. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you cannot play jazz and not be an honest person. You can't be a fake jazz player. Yes. Yeah. And I think that, sure. you know, along with that, there's a tendency to emulate people that are your favorites and my favorite was Wes Montgomery he was my hero but even at a very early age uh, I was around musicians who kind of took a dim view of that whenever I'd whip out my Wes Montgomery thing you know people would kind of you know look at me kind of funny they you know the, the audience would always love it I what would get... for do, doing something that he did right and it was really a, a, a stroke of luck for me to be around musicians who who kind of didn't 
really see that as necessarily a good thing, that I could get a lot of audience response by imitating another musician. And, and that encouraged me very early on to kind of try to investigate things. Yeah, that but were also, it, I mean, you were imitating him, but now, years later, you've done your own research and you've got your own thing going. Well, research is a word I like. I mean, you know, whenever somebody gives us a gig or you get to make one more record, I just consider it exactly that. It's like another point of research into the goal of trying to understand music in a deep way and, and, and become can, a good player. I was just thinking, beside Wes Montgomery, who are some of your favorite players? Well, there were three guys that were really huge for me, Wes being the major one. Um, Kenny Burrell was somebody that I just loved everything about his sound and yes. the feeling that he had and the, 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 just everything about Kenny to me was was a real model. And yeah. uh, and then the guy that, that I feel like is the major source for not, not just what I do, but sort of all of us that have followed him chronologically, and that's Jim Hall, who I think opened up this whole world of potential for what the guitar can offer other musicians and... and how the guitar can sort of kind of create this illusion of space and yet size and scale. He he just kind of changed the whole balance of what the guitar could be in jazz, I think. And I think John Schofield, Bill Frizzell, and I are kind of all more or less the same age, point to Jim, even though we all sound quite different from each other. Um, and to me, that's a kind of interesting sign right there, that he is somebody that, like the three of us, really admire and have learned from but at the same time his thing was just so open-ended it, it inspired us in very different ways which to me is great it means everything is carrying right on the music right. is carrying on thank That's goodness right. yeah i've got to ask you about your record i don't know how new it is the way up it's a very dramatic piece and all these different um tones and it gets passionate and loud and bombastic and then it gets quiet it's i can listen to that piece forever oh thank you so much and it's um that's probably what you were thinking though about how the world is today were you well i mean you know i i i think that the world has really um embraced you know, this sort of almost lowest common denominator approach to aesthetic issues and in, in a fairly recent well put. way. And, um, you know, for me, the, the kinds of things that I've found to be really worthwhile are not things that happen in, in a short period of time, you know. I mean, just to understand music has been a, a long, long road, as I think it is for everybody that's serious about it, whether they're a listener or a player. And it's not something that you can condense into a, you know, uh, five-second form, you know. And that's... Uh, the latest thing is now to, to, you know, they have a chart on Billboard for ringtones, which is a piece of music that lasts five seconds I or know. something to like me, that. To oh. me, And we're, we, we sort of went to the complete opposite extreme, which is to have one piece that lasts the entire CD. And, uh, you know, it, not that long-form writing is anything particularly new. I mean, this is, you know... Uh, uh, a substantial part of the tradition of music and it sadly has been kind of 
lost in the past uh, period of time. I mean, you know, there are, have been jazz composers that have have done that, and certainly classical composers. But uh, my feeling is that there's no reason why the lessons that have been learned throughout all of uh, music's history can, should not be brought into play with each yeah, new generation's approach right. to music. So uh, ringtones, it's funny, like you have to... Uh, put your ringtone through ASCAP or th something ridiculous, but... Um, well, it's hard to think of it as a form that is, you know, uh, you know, valuable to the degree that it's being monitored by the industry as not just right. a slight thing, but right. a, a fairly substantial part of I what, know. what music is now, you know, yeah. and that's just kind of something, I guess... Um, that's a new aspect of what the culture is like now. That's, uh, that's where either... it's going, my goodness. Uh, quick, let's stop talking about that and have some terrific music from you and your trio. That would be good. Cool. We're going to do uh, a tune next um, that is uh, a blues, fast, uh, up-tempo one called Go Get It. Thank you. 
Boy, that was something. What's it called? Go get it. I think you got it. <laughs> Man, that was exciting. To hear the full Piano Jazz broadcast, tune in to your NPR station or stream the program online at pianojazz.npr.org. Piano Jazz is a production of South Carolina Public Radio.